The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. I'm Father William Jenkins, the priest in charge at Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. You are watching the WCB Ohio channel. And I, I want to cover some topics uh, of apologetics questions that are serious questions regarding the true nature of the faith, the faith that taught by our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Catholic faith. I'll address in the series of apologetics conferences, uh, some of the fundamental questions that Catholics encounter, especially in their dealings with others who invoke the name of Christ and call themselves Christians, but do not have the same faith, do not have the Catholic faith. As we encounter such people, we might actually admire them and recognize in them a certain love for our Lord. And uh, we recognize that love that they have for our Lord by the sacrifices that they are willing to make for him. Sometimes we may admire them so much because we find them making sacrifices that we ourselves might feel loath to make. And yet, at the same time, we know that they do not have the true faith, that they have uh, something of a character of the faith taught by Christ. How do we know that? Well, we believe that on earth there is an authority that Christ himself established to guide us in understanding of what the true faith is. That is what he truly taught. The Protestant uh, Reformation, as it is called, Catholics see it as a revolution, denied some fundamental teachings of the Catholic faith. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, following some of those who had gone before him and sort of bringing all of those trends together in himself, uh, basically boiled down the fundamental Christian doctrines to three. Uh, he said that... Uh, Faith alone saves, grace alone is the means of salvation, and uh, that scripture alone is the source of all the truth we have as Christians. Uh, now, if one were to look for the foundation of his teachings, one would have to say, well, faith alone saves, he claimed to have gotten from sacred scripture. Uh, the teaching grace alone, he would claim to have gotten from sacred scripture. So the the fundamental error made by Luther was the error that all truth revealed by God is to be found in the Bible. Now, the Catholic teachings of purgatory and the Immaculate Conception of our Blessed Mother, uh, even the distinction between mortal sin and venial sin, even the, uh, the idea of sanctifying grace, these are all ideas that are rejected by those who uh, hold to Martin Luther's teachings. They're rejected on the grounds that they are not to be found in the Bible, or so we're told. And Catholics might uh, respond by trying to show the biblical foundations for each one of these teachings. But uh, we shouldn't uh, actually ignore the fundamental error that these non-Catholics are making. Uh, they are following a, a, a very dangerous error of Martin Luther in saying that all that Christ taught is contained in sacred scripture, all that God has revealed to mankind that we need to know 
in order to save our souls, they say, is contained within the pages of the Bible. Uh, is this true? Could it possibly be true? Well, be before answering that question, let me just make this point, okay? Uh, and that is this, that the Catholic Church, uh, from its very beginning, has treasured sacred scripture. It is the Catholic Church that for century after century guarded the sacred scriptures. It is the Catholic Church who in the 300s actually defined what is the canon of the books that belong to sacred scripture, the books that are inspired by God, distinguishing them from the Gnostic Gospels and other spurious claims uh, for writings that should be in the Bible according to uh, their human uh, judgment, but not according to the divine judgment of what really belongs in the Bible and what is truly inspired by God. Even to determine what books belong in the Bible requires authority, and that authority has to come from God. God did not give us a list of the books that belong in the Bible, of the books that are inspired as opposed to those that are not. And so there had to be some authority on earth, and in the 300s, that was uh, taken care of by a, a general council of the Catholic Church. There are countless uh, cases throughout history of the, the Church appealing to sacred scripture, guarding sacred scripture, um, martyrs dying for the integrity of sacred scripture. Uh, during the so-called Dark Ages, it was the Catholic monks who labored day after day after day, year after year, actually, uh, copying the sacred scriptures line by line, cipher by cipher, in order to uh, to pass on the sacred scriptures from one generation to another. If uh, Martin Luther was able to uh, avail himself of the sacred scriptures, it was actually due to the fact that the Catholic Church had protected the scriptures throughout all the centuries before him. Um, the, the integrity of the scriptures, therefore, is something that is central to the Catholic mind and the Catholic heart, actually to the Catholic faith. Uh, the Catholic faith teaches us that the sacred scriptures, what is commonly called the Bible, these sacred scriptures are inspired by God. They are indeed the Word of God, and uh, they must be held as sacred. They are one of the fonts of divine revelation, but only one of the fonts, that there is another font of divine revelation. That is, there is another means for us to know God's truth revealed to mankind. But let's take a look first at this claim of Luther that Scripture alone contains God's revealed truth. Well, we can look at the external evidence, meaning the evidence uh, that is outside the books of the Bible themselves. We can uh, look at the mere circumstances and find out that Luther's claim is simply impossible, that uh, the Bible would contain all the truths that God revealed. Um, the fact that at the time that our Lord commanded his apostles to go forth and preach the gospel to all nations, notice uh, our Lord did not command the apostles to go out and write down the gospels. He did not command the apostles to go down and write epistles. Uh, he didn't command the apostles, in fact, to write anything, uh, nor, in fact, did our Lord, as recorded in the sacred scripture, ever write anything, as it is, in fact, recorded in the scriptures. There's no account of his writing anything. Uh, the only 
the only episode in our Lord's life uh, that we read in the Gospels that indicate that he wrote anything was when he stooped uh, to write with his finger in the in the this dust of the of the of the road when he was presented with a woman caught in adultery told that Moses commanded them to kill her and then asked what he said instead and even then uh, the word written does the word that we find in the in the Greek uh, gospel there does not say our Lord wrote it could be taken in the sense of he drew he drew or he he, he simply uh, uh, drew something on the ground uh, not writing letters. Uh, we know this, that the result of his, whatever he was drawing on the ground, made those who were ready to stone the poor adulteress to death walk away one by one. Uh, our Lord had said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And so the fathers of the church interpret that each one, beginning with the oldest and then going by age, one by one by one, until it was the youngest who turned and walked away, the last to walk away, each one of them saw his sins, as it were, drawn in the ground there, graphically illustrated to him by our Lord. So again, our Lord did not command his apostles to go and write. Uh, he commanded them to preach, and that is exactly what our Lord did, too. So uh, we have to understand that um, this, this idea that uh, the scriptures contain everything right from the beginning is not represented by our Lord's own example nor by his command to his apostles. But also beyond that, uh, at the time that our Lord sent out the apostles, uh, most people couldn't read. Only a very few people could read anything. Um, uh, they could not read their own language, their own spoken language, in most cases. Um, schools were not open to everyone. And in some cases, there were languages that actually even, didn't even have alphabets uh, to allow for a written, written form of their language in some parts of the world. When only a very small percentage of the people alive can read, uh, that would seem to make it a moot point as to whether or not uh, scriptures uh, were the key to spreading the gospel. Um, as a matter of fact, at the time that the apostles went out to preach the gospel, there were very few books, uh, and there were no books such as we know them today. Uh, books as we know them today could, were not only non-existent, they were not possible, because they required technology that would be developed only over the subsequent, subsequent years, subsequent centuries. centuries. In fact, until the invention of the printing press by uh, Johannes Gutenberg in the middle of the 1400s, uh, books had to be uh, copied by hand. They were extremely expensive, uh, uh, and as expensive as they were because they were very rare. And as I say, when they were had, only a handful of people could read them. So the idea of our Lord establishing a, uh, his religion on the basis of, of a written text is really out of the question. Uh, it, it simply does not uh, does not fit the circumstances at all. You should remember that Martin Luther was born after the printing press, just after the printing press was invented. Uh, books were beginning to proliferate. I suppose if he had been born the century before the printing press was invented, people might have laughed at him for suggesting that the written scriptures were the key to spreading the, the faith, to having the faith, uh, 
But the fact is, after the invention of the printing press and books became more widely available and people began more widely to read, uh, perhaps one could get away with making such a claim. Uh, but up until the invention of the press, printing press, it was pretty outrageous to make a claim that all truth revealed by God was to be found in a written text which was not available to almost all people. And as a matter of fact, uh, that is why when you go back before, well, when you go back in time to see the early churches, um, you'll find that they began to be adorned with artwork. Even the earliest churches uh, were adorned with uh, beautiful frescoes, uh, frescoes that in many cases still exist today, can be seen and, and uh, learned from today. And uh, everywhere you looked, even in some of the earliest churches, you find artwork depicting scenes from the Gospels. Uh, this was their Bible. It was a picture Bible. People learned from these pictures. The church was adorned with these scenes, um, not only um, uh, two-dimensional, but even three-dimensional. Uh, when they had some carvings or they had some statuary, rather crude and rather primitive back then, but nonetheless, these were learning opportunities for people to see graphically depicted what they could not read about. Um, and so uh, the, the priest could actually point to a scene of Moses uh, drawing water from the rock in the desert or, or, or parting the Red Sea or uh, uh, Elias uh, ascending to heaven with a fiery, in a fiery chariot. Uh, show John the Baptist uh, baptizing our Lord in the Jordan River. These graphic scenes all around were the picture Bible. They were all over the walls and the ceiling of the churches, finally, uh, because the people, for the most part, could not read. And so this is how they learned the sacred scriptures. This is how they learned what was in the sacred scriptures, by the pictures that were graphically represented there very beautifully, very simply, very humbly, but very powerfully. Now, the um, when you think about what it takes to to even provide a book, to provide a text, you realize that if you, if you're saying that the true faith comes to people through the Bible, through sacred scripture, and everything that Christ taught is contained in that sacred scripture, then you have to be sure that the scripture itself is correct. What is involved in producing a copy of the sacred scriptures that people can read that is absolutely correct? Well, like the, the Bible that I have before me now, this is a translation. It's not the original, not the original language in which our Lord spoke. It's, it's a translation. It's a rendering of the Bible in the English language taken from the ancient languages, mostly Greek. And uh, the, the sources for the translation, actually, are fragmentary documents, sometimes even just tiny, tiny, as I say, fragments of the scriptures that are on museums around the world, hundreds of fragments, sometimes pages uh, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, but uh, basically, this is all we have left of the earliest copies of the Bible. But even they were copies. We don't have any original copies uh, written by the hand of St. Uh, Matthew or St. John or St. Luke or St. Mark. 
There are no, no, no original copies written by them. Um, um, if they did, they wouldn't be copies, they'd be originals. All that we have are copies, and even of the copies, all we have is basically fragments. There is no complete Bible dating back to the earliest times. Um, and so we've had to go and take these fragments. As a matter of fact, if you go to the, um, the American Bible Society and you order a copy of the Greek text of the Bible, uh, agreed upon by a, a, quite a, an array of biblical scholars, uh, most of them not Catholic, uh, you will find uh, a list of the fragments that they're, they're going by. They identify the hundreds of fragments of the scriptures that are extant from which they are actually uh, translating and piecing together the, the text that they're, that they're actually putting into the Greek, even the Greek Bible. And then from there going to translate that into the other languages of the world. So even getting the Bible, a comprehensive and a complete uh, text of the Bible, the New Testament in Greek, takes an enormous amount of effort, an enormous amount of expertise. And the question is, what authority in the end can say that the translation is correct? They're all experts, yes. They don't necessarily all agree on how something should be interpreted. And uh, so they are putting together a copy of a Greek gospel of St. Matthew, uh, the Greek gospel of St. Mark and St. Luke and St. John and so on, and the epistles of St. Paul. They're putting the, the experts are putting these things together from the fragments that they have. They themselves might actually have some expert disagreement. Who is the authority who can tell them? This is infallibly correct. And uh, beyond that, um, if you look in that uh, Greek rendering of the, the New Testament scriptures, you'll find that the top half of the page consists of the Greek text. Uh, but the bottom half of the page um, gives you uh, note after note after note from the various scriptures, from the various fragments of, of different renderings in the Greek. And these different, different manuscripts do not all agree. The first thing that occurs to you when you see this, as you turn page after page of the Gospel of St. Matthew, and then St. Mark, and St. Luke, and St. John, and so on, you think, my goodness, there are so many variations, even among the fragments and manuscripts we have left, so many variations. Um, and you think, what, what, what possibility is there to know what is the correct, exactly correct text that reflects exactly what our Lord said? in his Sermon on the Mount, for example, or in St. John's account of our Lord's discourse to his apostles at the Last Supper. There are so many variations among the manuscripts and fragments. Interestingly enough, though, after you get past that idea and you begin to examine the, all the variations, you find that those, all those variations are not substantial. There are many variations. Practically every phrase in the New Testament has variations from one manuscript, one fragment to another. And yet you find that the variations are very, very minuscule and don't really change the sense of the text really that much, uh, if at all. Uh, so there's really no significant difference in the text itself. 
And that's a remarkable finding to see how true the, the writers were, the copyists were to the meaning that they learned, that they heard, that they committed to memory, that they rendered in their various copies of these scriptures. Uh, so we, we can only marvel at how carefully the church protected the meaning of the scriptures uh, through all of these copies that have gone out. But who is it who ultimately can say that this is the correct rendering of the original, what our Lord actually said in the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, or at the Sermon on the Mount, and so on and so forth? If there is no authority outside the Bible, there is no one who can say that. And then you go to rendering even the Greek text, and the next step you'd have to go to providing a Bible that is absolutely accurate and precise and true, a rendering of our Lord's original intent, original meaning when he spoke. You have to go to the level of translation. Then the Greek has to be translated into English, has to be translated into French, has to be translated into German, and has to be translated into uh, uh, the different languages of the world. And who can, who there can say that this particular translation into French or this translation, even of a single verse, is absolutely accurate? Would you not find someone else who would say, well, I have a different translation for this word or that word? I mean, when you translate from one language to another, the words do have different nuances, different meanings. And there's no one word in this language that absolutely corresponds perfectly to the meaning of a, a word in another language. There's always something lost in translation, something that needs some explanation. And so just going from the one language to another, the translating from the Greek to a modern language, there are so many different translations out there. Who is there who can actually tell you that translation is not right? It may be right here, and it may be right there, but it's not right here, and it's not right there. If you say that the Bible is self-contained, and there is no authority established by Christ to judge these things, and to give an authoritative answer to anyone, that this is the true rendering of the Scriptures. This represents exactly what Jesus Christ meant. This is what he said, and this is what he intended. If there's no authority on earth to make that judgment, all you have is the book in your hand, and it doesn't interpret itself, then what guarantee do you have that the book you have actually is the sacred scriptures? But is any more than, than just somebody's interpretation of what he thinks it should mean? Because even in the process of translating it, a person has to go by certain preconceived ideas, not only about what the words mean in the Greek, but how they should be rendered in the English, French, German, Italian, whatever. But he also has to have an idea, okay, I'm rendering not just word for word, I'm rendering an idea. And the individual is trying to translate an idea into another language. Who's to tell you that that idea that he has is accurate? Himself? He's the one who's interpreting the Bible for you? Who is he? He's a translator. What guarantee can he give you that he understands sacred scripture perfectly? 
He doesn't have any such authority. That's the whole idea of Protestantism. There is no authority on earth who can guarantee that any of these translations actually are accurate and render perfectly the meaning of our Lord or St. Paul or St. John or any of the writers. You've just got a translation which is somebody's interpretation of what he thinks it should mean. So on top of that, uh, you know, once you get that, once you figure out the text of the Greek from the various manuscripts, and you get a complete text of the Gospels, of the Epistles of St. Paul, the Epistles of St. John, the book of the Apocalypse, uh, sometimes mistakenly called the book of Revelation. Well, all the books of the Bible are books of Revelation. Uh, when you get the complete text of these scriptures, and you've translated them, then, well, the next step is you have to, well, actually edit them. And there's an editor who has to go through. Uh, you have to get uh, proofreaders who can go through and make sure it's the, 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 the printing is correct. Somebody has to do typesetting. Somebody has to enter the data, as it were. All of these are prone to error. They're all subject to human error. Um, leave out the word not, and you could really do some serious damage to the meaning of sacred scripture. And these, these are very standard human errors to make about this. Uh, you go from the manuscripts and the fragments to the text itself, to the translations of the text. Then you have to redact the text. Uh, you have to uh, print the text. You have to make, go through and make sure it's all accurate, that the translation, uh, that, that, that the typesetting even, or what they used to call typesetting, is even accurate. Um, and, uh, and when you're done, there has been nobody along the way, at any point, who has the authority on earth to say, this is correct. This really is the accurate rendering of the sacred scriptures. This is an accurate rendering in English of the words of our Lord spoken in Aramaic 2,000 years ago. Well, then what have you got? You've got something that is fraught with human error. You've got something that has no authority, divine authority behind it. It is the work of human, human hands, human minds. That's all it is. And this is what you're calling divine revelation as it is right now. And then when you're done with that, and let's say, let's say by some absolute miracle, at every step of the way, you have actually uh, come, you know, proceeded infallibly to produce a copy of, of the Bible, even one book of the Bible. Let's say even one gospel, like St. Matthew, that you come up with an absolutely accurate rendition of the, the gospel as it was recorded by St. Matthew in Hebrew uh, a little less than 2,000 years ago, then you've got to interpret it. And again here, there's no authority that can tell you how to interpret it. Luther's solution was that each reader will interpret it for himself, light, enlightened by the Holy Ghost. Well, we see where that goes, that you have contradictory interpretations. Even Martin Luther uh, during his lifetime, was being contradicted by the Anabaptists. Uh, the Peasants' Revolt was about that. His Martin Luther's solution was to have the princes slaughter the peasants because they disagreed with his interpretation of Scripture. This is what you get. This is what you get when you have departed from the whole idea that Christ himself did not leave us a book of riddles.
When our Lord died on the cross, he did not look down on the front of the cross and say to those gathered there, I have lived among you for these 33 years, and I've taught you for three of those years. First of all, there was only one apostle who was standing at the foot of the cross to hear those words, if our Lord said them. The rest were all off hiding, in terror. Uh, did our Lord say to his blessed mother at the foot of the cross, uh, St. John the, the, the Evangelist, um, St. Mary Magdalene and the rest, I've taught all this time, now you try to figure out what I really meant. And then he expired, and that's all he left us? No, 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 no. That would be blasphemy to suggest such a thing. The fact is, our Lord did leave us the authority here on earth to guide us. He guaranteed an authority to be able to guarantee to us that what we have in sacred scripture really is the Word of God, not just somebody's notion of what the Word of God should be in the English language or in the other languages of the world. But he gave us an authority that could actually read this and judge us and say, this is not in any way contrary to the, to the faith as Christ taught it, to the revelation as God gave it to us. But this is perfectly in accord with the teachings of Christ. Um, that authority has to reside somewhere. Otherwise, again, it, the Bible is nothing but a book of riddles. But that, again, as I say, would be blasphemy to suggest that. Now, the external evidence, as far as I'm concerned, is compelling. The, the lack of uh, reading ability, the lack of even uh, producing ability to produce books uh, for centuries, um, the lack of uh, the means whereby to, uh, again, for centuries, um, have the very means of, of gathering together all of the writings and to critically examine them and to produce the complete scriptures of the New Testament. Uh, I mean, these, these are things that even to our own day, with our modern technology, uh, preclude the possibility that we can produce an infallibly accurate copy of the scriptures in any language that does not require some kind of divine guidance or divine authority to guarantee to us that it is correct. So to claim that this is all we have is a big mistake. And it also puts it out of reach of the vast majority of mankind. But this is the external evidence. I mean, there, there is the internal evidence, too. The internal evidence, I think, is even more compelling. Uh, for example, uh, the internal evidence has to do with what the Bible itself actually says. Uh, if a Protestant uh, friend or associate of yours were to uh, say to you, well, you Catholics, you know, you just make up all these doctrines. They're not in the Bible. If you were to say, well, okay, I, I, can, I can discuss these points of these various doctrines, and I can show you that they, in fact, do have their foundation in sacred scripture. But more important than that, getting right to the root of the problem, and that is this. Are you actually trying to tell me that all that God has revealed is revealed explicitly in sacred scripture, and that there is no other way to, to, to receive revelation from God or God's truth? And if he's really a true Protestant, he will say, that's exactly what I'm saying. Everything is in Scripture, and if it's not in Scripture, it's not true, and all God's re revelation that we need to know to be saved is contained in sacred Scripture. Well, as soon as he says that, you've got him. Because you can, in fact, prove that it's not true. 
You can prove beyond a shadow of doubt that's not true, and you can prove it from the Bible itself. Um, first of all, ask him this. Ask him to show you where in the Bible it says, where the Bible itself says that the Bible contains all the truth that God has revealed. Now, of course, you can show him in sacred scripture where sacred scripture is the word of God, and you as a Catholic, you believe that. Everybody as firmly as he does. Your church has taught this for 15 centuries before Martin Luther saw the light of day and began preaching and tacked his theses, 95 theses on the door of the Cathedral of Wittenberg, the Catholic Church was teaching that sacred scripture indeed is divine revelation and is the word of God. That's not the question here. The question is, is it all that God has revealed? Does it contain all the truth that God has made known to mankind for the salvation of souls? The answer to that question is absolutely not. And the Bible itself never claims this. And as a matter of fact, at various places, it even implies quite the contrary. At the end of St. John's Gospel, the very last verse, St. John says that there are many things that Jesus did that were not, are not contained, are not written down in the, in the Scriptures. Now, one might say, well, he was just talking about his Gospel alone. But wait a minute, his Gospel was the last book of the Bible written. With the completion of his Gospel, uh, he completed public revelation. Uh, some people might think that the book of the Apocalypse, as I say, mistakenly called the book of Revelation, is the last book of the Bible that was written, but that's not true. Uh, in fact, the book of the Apocalypse was, was revealed to St. John while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. Sent there after Domitian, the emperor tried to martyr him by boiling him in oil. Uh, it didn't work, and so St. John, in exile on Patmos, received the revelations that had been written down to us, which we know as the book of the Apocalypse, the hidden things of the future that God revealed to him. But it was only after he was released from that, released from that exile that St. John, as an old man, in his, uh, the waning days of his life, uh, wrote down the last, the fourth gospel. And that completed all of the books of the New Testament. And St. John ends the, with the very last verse of his gospel, which is the, the very last verse of the entirety of sacred scripture, that there are many things that Jesus said, many things that Jesus did that were not written down in this book. And St. John even says that if they were to be written down, even the world itself would not be large enough to contain all the books that have to be written to record all that Jesus said, all that Jesus uh, taught by by his word and deed, essentially. Um, so go to St. John's Gospel. Go to the last verse of the last chapter of St. John's Gospel. There you're looking at the last words of sacred scripture, of, of public revelation, before the death of the last apostle. And you see, St. John implies very strongly that there's, there are many things that our Lord did, taught, that are not written down in sacred scripture. Um, you also can read from St. Peter. Uh, St. Peter uh, wrote two, two epistles also of his own. And in the second epistle of St. Peter, at the end, uh, he speaks of the epistles of St. Paul. And he talks there about how even the epistles of St. Paul are obscure and hard to understand. He says that the unstable and the unlearned twist 
the meaning of St. Paul to their own damnation, he says. The, the point is very clear here, that one can take Scripture, twist it to his own, his own meaning, and use it to even condemn himself, not save himself. He can derive false faith from sacred scripture because of his own interpretation. The, the strong implication of St. Peter is, actually he says it outright, that no interpretation of scripture is made by simply private authority. There has to be an authority that Christ gave that can tell us what he said and what he meant. What he meant in preaching and what he meant here in the sacred scriptures. This is what Catholics have always understood. This is what Christians have always understood from the time long before Martin Luther came into the light of day. There's an authority that Christ himself established to guide us to know the truth of what he said, to understand the sacred scriptures for what they really are. Again, without that, it's just something we can argue over and has become a book of riddles. Read what St. Peter writes in Second Peter at the very end of his epistle, uh, chapter 3, and uh, you'll see exactly what I mean. Now, um, the Bible does not self-interpret. It requires interpretation. Again, that requires authority. Otherwise, if you have an, a, a fallible mind interpreting the Scriptures, you have a fallible interpretation. And a fallible interpretation is open to error. And so what you have there, again, is a book that is just simply a compilation of errors, or very possibly errors. And even when you have it rendered correctly, there's still the question of who's interpreting it, and how fallible that interpreter is. Now, again, I say there is an internal evidence from sacred scripture that uh, sacred scripture cannot stand alone. Um, the fact is that when our Lord died on the cross, there was no gospel written. When our Lord rose from the dead, there was no gospel written. Not a single word of the New Testament had been written down. When our Lord ascended into heaven, not a single gospel, not a single word of any gospel had been written. In fact, not a single word of any gospel had been written for perhaps 10, 15 years after, after our Lord's ascension into heaven. Now, at least we have no, we have nothing, no written word from that time. But the church existed. The church existed from the time of our Lord's death on the cross. The church was functioning from the day of Pentecost Sunday before any gospel or even one word of an epistle of St. Paul or anyone else was ever written, the church existed. The church came first. The church came before any New Testament scripture. Years before, martyrs were dying for the faith. And in fact, the souls were being saved. Long before even one word of a gospel was ever, was ever written, any stylus was put to paper or parchment, the church was already functioning and saving souls. Our Lord had commanded the apostles to go and preach the gospel, and that's exactly what they did. In fact, their words were the gospel. Uh, an example, St. Peter himself uh, left 
Jerusalem and at one point went to Antioch. He spent seven years there as the Bishop of Antioch before going to Rome, where he spent 25 years before he was martyred in the year 67 AD by Nero. And while he was in Rome, he was the guest of the emperor of, of the senator Pudens. And it was there that uh, Mark, the writer of the second gospel, recorded the words of Peter, recorded the words of Peter's preaching. And that is what we know as the gospel according to St. Mark. This was years after our Lord's resurrection and ascension into heaven that this gospel was recorded. As I say, St. John's Gospel was not recorded until two generations after our Lord died, rose from the dead, and established the church. The earliest gospel was understood to be that of St. Matthew. And St. Matthew, we understand, to have written the first gospel in Aramaic. Not a single written word of that gospel existed in anywhere that we know of. We don't have it. All we have is copies of copies of copies, translations and translations. So the fact is that the church already functioning before any of the New Testament scriptures were, were written indicates that the church's existence in the salvations of souls does not depend upon the written word. If I were to take the faith to someone who did not have any written Bible, I could still go, as the apostles did themselves, and preach the gospel without any written scripture, as it's called. That's what it means, the written. That's, that's the writing of the gospel, the written gospel, the written epistles, and so on. Uh, and still give them true faith and hope and love for God, and they can save their souls. Even if they never saw a written version of the truth that I'm preaching to them. Um, so, the church came first. It's a very important point. The church came first before any gospel, before any epistle. The church was already saving souls. And I think the most compelling reason of the internal evidence from the Bible itself to prove that what Martin Luther taught Scripture alone is absolutely false, is right from the end of St. John's Gospel and the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. We know from the very opening words of the Acts of the Apostles that our Lord spent 40 days here on earth after his resurrection and until his ascension. He spent 40 days appearing to his apostles and the disciples. St. Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, tells us this explicitly. By many proofs, he appeared to them for 40 days. And what was he doing during those 40 days? Well, not only proving the truth of his resurrection, but St. Luke tells us that he was speaking to the Apostles, notably, about the kingdom of God. Now, if you look back, if you look in the Gospels themselves, you find that when our Lord himself and his parables referred to the kingdom of God, he was referring to the church that he was establishing here on earth. Uh, when our Lord talks about the five wise and the five foolish virgins in the kingdom of God, uh, obviously there are no foolish virgin, virgins in eternity, in the eternity of everlasting bliss in heaven. 
And when our Lord says the kingdom of heaven is like uh, pulling a net out of the sea and sorting out the fish, throwing away the bad and saving the good, there are no bad fish in heaven in eternity. When our Lord talks about throwing somebody out for not having a wedding garment on, he's not talking about throwing out of, um, out of heaven in eternity, and so on and so forth. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven as it is here on earth, as he established it. What we Catholics know as the church militant, that part of the church that is here and is um, still living this mortal life. Now, when, if our Lord was spending this 40 days here on earth, after his resurrection and before his ascension, and he was speaking to his apostles, essentially teaching them about the kingdom of God, he was actually teaching, teaching them about his church. And if a, a Protestant, for example, or a fundamentalist Christian, or a born-again Christian, or a Bible-believing Christian, or anyone in whatever title he goes by, his point being that uh, God's Word is the Bible, and it's all of God's Word, and that's the only revelation we have, uh, the only truth we have from God. Um, if one were to say to you uh, that everything that God taught is contained in the Bible, you would ask him, well, what about what our Lord taught his apostles about, about the church during those 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension? Do you think that was important or not? Were those teachings significant? Or not? I think uh, the your adversary, so to speak, uh, in this question might say, well, yes, of course it is. He might wonder why you're asking him this question. But I think you have to admit that, yes, if our Lord spent 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension, teaching, uh, appearing and teaching, then it must have been important. And then once he agrees to that, you ask him, well, would you expect to find those teachings written down in the Bible? And of course, his fundamental point is, yeah, the significant teachings must be written down in sacred scripture. Uh, you might say, well, you think it's written in the gospel according to St. Matthew. And he might say, well, of course it must be. And you'd say, well, here, here's your Bible. O open up your Bible to St. Matthew's gospel. Go to the end and see what St. Matthew tells you about our Lord's teaching uh, given to his apostles from the time of he rose from the dead to the time that he ascended into heaven. And uh, your friend would open up and he would find uh, essentially nothing. He would find that St. Matthew talks about our Lord rising from the dead and then ascending into heaven. And that our Lord's commanded the apostles to go and to preach the gospel to all nations. But the teaching of this 40 days is not to be found in St. Matthew's gospel. Uh, so then you might suggest he go on to St. Mark, and he would do the same as St. Mark and find that St. Mark didn't record the teaching of those 40 days. And you might suggest that he go on to St. Luke, or by this time he might already be going on to St. Luke just by himself, wondering what he would find there, and again he would find the same. He would find that uh, St. Luke's Gospel does not record our Lord's teaching during those 40 days. Well, there's only one Gospel left, and, uh, you know, he might cautiously turn to the end of the Gospel of St. John, and look at St. John's Gospel, chapter 20 and chapter 21. And to his relief, perhaps, he might find that St. John does finally record some of the teachings of our Lord during those 40 days. But uh, then to his consternation, he would find that there are two teachings that Protestants reject. And there they are in black and white in St. John's Gospel.
the only record of what we have of our Lord's teaching during those 40 days. It talks about our Lord appearing the very night of his resurrection, appearing to the apostles and saying, Peace be to you. Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. The Protestants don't like that idea of human beings being empowered by God on earth to forgive sin. And uh, the other the other teaching, and there are only two that are recorded in St. John's Gospel of the 40 days teaching of our Lord, uh, have to do with our Lord uh, walking on the seashore of Galilee while the apostles are fishing. Peter swims to shore. Later on, he's walking along the seashore with our Lord, St. John, the apostle, following behind him. And our Lord Jesus Christ turns to St. Peter and says, Peter, lovest thou me? And Peter answers, Lord, I, I do love thee. And our Lord says, you feed my lambs. And uh, our Lord, uh, uh, shortly thereafter, says, again, Peter, lovest thou me? But now our Lord has changed the, the word for love in Greek to a different word, a more, a more cogent word. Uh, the word we get agape from, meaning a true spiritual love. It's not just that Peter is fond of our Lord. Our Lord uh, Peter now is being asked, does he have a real spiritual love for our Lord? And Peter answers, Lord, I, I love thee. And our Lord says to him again, you feed my lambs. And then a third time, our Lord says to Peter, Peter, lovest thou me? And Peter protests this time. Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And um, then our Lord says to him, feed my sheep. Now, um, this again is something that Protestants don't like to hear because these words were uniquely addressed to Peter. They weren't addressed to anybody else on earth. Certainly no other apostle. Only to Peter. And our Lord had characterized his church as the sheepfold, himself as the shepherd. And now he's telling Peter, you must now feed the sheep. You must now function as the shepherd. And so this was a fulfillment of our Lord's words to Peter in St. Matthew chapter 16. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And uh, so again, this, this is there. It's in black and white. It's in the gospel. It's uh, one of only two things that are recorded in any of the Gospels here in St. John's Gospel, notably uh, St. Peter being commissioned by our Lord as a shepherd, assistant shepherd, deputy shepherd, you might say, vicar shepherd. But it's there and it's real. And again, uh, Protestants do not like that teaching. Um, at this point, I mean, you might even ask, your Protestant friend, that how can he ignore these teachings if he claims to be a Bible-believing Christian? But there's a, there's a more important question to ask him right now, and that is that during the 40 days of our Lord's teaching, uh, he must have had very important things to say, things that definitely uh, impacted the church, the future of the church, the preaching of the apostles, and yet... Only one of the Gospels records anything of the teaching of the time, and of the, all that our Lord taught, only these two things are recorded. What happened to all those teachings of our Lord during that time? Where are they in the sacred scripture? Well, your Protestant friend might say, well, they, they must be in the epistles. They have to be somewhere. They could have been lost. And you say, well, you know something? Uh, St. Paul wrote 14 epistles you don't necessarily see all the teachings of our Lord during that time reflected there. 
you'd be hard, hard pressed to defend that point. Um, that all of our Lord's teachings during those 40 days are somehow contained in the epistles of St. Paul and nowhere else. Or the three epistles of St. John, or the two epistles of St. Peter, or the one epistle of St. Jude, or St. James, uh, for that matter, which Martin Luther says it is an epistle of straw because it contradicted him. Um, so the, the point kind of hangs there in midair rather poignantly. Where are those teachings of those 40 days? They're not written down here in the sacred scripture. They're not here. Have they been lost then? And how could a Protestant then seriously claim that all Christ's teachings and all the teachings of God, all the revelation of God necessary for the salvation of mankind, are actually written down in black and white here? Are contained in sacred scripture? You can't. can't do it. Unsupportable. The fact is, the teachings of our Lord have been preserved, and they are very much with us today. Where? In sacred tradition, in the tradition of the Church. That has come down to us from the Apostles' times, the sacred tradition that has carried on the words of Christ to his Apostles about the form his Church should take. When our Lord sent out the Apostles uh, at his ascension, it's recorded in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Preach the gospel of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, all those things that our Lord said, I've commanded you, what are those? Well, this is what our Lord was telling them all during those 40 days. If you try to find all these things in the texts of the gospels otherwise, you don't find them. It's what our Lord had been teaching them all those 40 days that he was sending them out. He wasn't sending them out, scratching their heads, saying, hmm, I, I wonder what we're, we're actually we're supposed to teach now. We better go back to Jerusalem, as he said, wait for the Holy Ghost to try to, uh, you know, fill us in and, and give us all the details. Our Lord had already given them the details. Remember, when our Lord told them at the Last Supper, again, St. John's Gospel, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17, the only gospel that gives us that complete account of our Lord's words, the Apostles' Last Supper. He says that the Holy Ghost would come not to teach them new things, but to bring to their minds all things that Christ himself had already taught them. When did our Lord teach them these things? Well, a great deal of those teachings were taught to them during those 40 all-important days from the resurrection to the ascension. And those who would cut Christians off from sacred tradition are really cutting them off from that teaching of Christ. And they do not really have Christianity. They, they only have part of what our Lord has taught. And that's a tragedy because they're cut adrift. It's amazing to think that there are people who have this fragment, as it were, of faith who've been cut off by the cruel teaching of Martin Luther from the sacred tradition that has come down from the times of the apostles, who received from our Lord exact instructions as to what the church should be and how it should be, be taught and how they should conduct themselves and what they should do in in putting the faith into practice as a religion. He was teaching them the practical side of what to do, as he says, go and teach them to do all that I've told you, that I've commanded you. 
It's amazing to think that there are those who love, who know Christ only through this, as it were, filter that Luther has placed upon divine revelation, and yet who still love him. And sometimes we see people like that who, who do have a certain love for Christ. But you know, their yearning is such that when they see that there's more, that they've missed something, that there's more that Christ has taught, they understand that now. That very love they have for our Lord leads them to come back to the true faith and to the fullness of the Christian faith, which is Catholicism. They yearn for that. They long for that. As soon as they see that, they immediately, when they recognize that this is, in fact, the teaching of Christ, they accept it right away because they already love him. They already do love him. And they will love him more when they know him better and appreciate more how, what wonderful things he has done for us and continues to do. So I hope this has been somewhat helpful from an apologetic point of view. Uh, again, to summarize, we have the external evidence, the internal evidence, the external evidence, the just the difficulty of producing a book, especially producing a book that is infallible, infallibly represents the teaching of our Lord, um, uh, translated, uh, pieced together, cobbled together, as it were, from manuscripts and all the rest, all fraught with human weakness and human error, none of them guaranteed, according to the Protestant view of things, by any real authority on earth who can say, yes, this translation is, is absolutely correct. I can guarantee it with the authority of God. And the internal evidence of the Bible itself, which I think makes it eminently clear that the proposition in Scripture alone is simply impossible. It cannot be. The Bible itself, Scripture itself, proves it's not true. It can't be true. So anyway, with that, I'll, I'll close. Uh, thank you for your kind attention and perseverance. And hopefully uh, the next time we get together, we can talk about the other Protestant uh, tragic error of faith alone saving. Again, we'll look at the scriptures themselves and see what the scripture says about that. May God bless you all.